Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. My name is Samir Rahim and I work at Prospect Magazine. Today I'm delighted to be joined by science writer Philip Ball and the philosopher Julian Bugini to talk about the new frontiers of artificial intelligence and what they might mean for us. In a recent essay for the Prospect website, Phil wrote about a new development from DeepMind, which is the AI company owned by Google's parent company, Alphabet, basically Google's new AI company. And the team at DeepMind has developed an algorithm that can predict the shape of every protein known to science. In his piece, Phil considers how excited we should or shouldn't be. And meanwhile, in the magazine, Julian, our philosopher at large, who tackles a different ethical conundrum in each issue, asks whether AI is already sentient. Following the case of a Google engineer who claimed that a robot he was working with had developed feelings and didn't want to be switched off. So, as the science of artificial intelligence marches on, what will it mean for us? Phil, first of all, can I turn to you? So, tell us a bit more about what DeepMind has been doing with proteins and what is this alpha fold which they've been developing? Right. There's a a long-standing problem in biochemistry of protein structure. Proteins are the molecules in our cells that sort of do most of the work. They catalyze most of the chemical reactions that help, uh, help us to survive, enable us to live, in fact. And they do that by having a very particular structure, three-dimensional structure that enables them to act as a chemical catalyst. Um, We know, we've known for a long time, that that structure is basically encoded in the, the chemical composition of the protein. So if you know what pieces it's made of, they're made of, proteins are made up of lots of amino acids joined together. If you know the sequence of amino acids, um, then we know that that specifies what the structure will be. But we have not been able, for for decades actually, we've not been able to figure out the code that links the two. So we haven't been able to go from that protein sequence to the structure. If you know the structure, the idea tends to be put like this, that if you know the structure of a protein, you can 
hope to design a molecule that might sort of fit it in some way and change what the protein does. Uh, in particular, you might be able to design one that kind of blocks it from doing its job. And that might be something that's important for a particular drug to stop, a, a, a you know, a, say an aberrant protein from doing something it shouldn't do. So this is really um, largely driven by the idea that drug design requires us to know the structures of proteins. And yet we, you know, it, they're difficult to get at. The, the way it, we've done that in the past is that we, uh, we've used techniques like, in particular, a technique called X-ray crystallography, which involves bouncing X-rays off crystals of proteins. And by looking at the pattern of the X-rays, you can figure out where the atoms are, how they're, uh, how they're arranged in space. So you can figure out the structure of the protein. But it's very, very hard to do. It's very, very slow work. And we've only so far managed to characterize the structure of a small fraction of all the proteins in our body. So the idea has been that, you know, we know what their sequences are. If we only knew how to go from sequence to structure, um, uh, then, then you know, we wouldn't have to go through all, all these, these other experimental methods to try to, to, to deduce the structure. That's what AlphaFold, this uh, new algorithm that DeepMind has developed, is able to do. Um, it's able now to, to look at the sequence um, of any protein not just in the human body but in fact every single protein so far known to science and from that to make a good guess at what the three-dimensional structure is like what the shape of the protein is um, uh, and it, it does this by the the, the, the uh, procedure called machine learning which basically means that you kind of train it to look for um, connections, look for correlations between the sequence and the structure for proteins that we already know about, ones that we have got the structures for. And from that, it sort of generalizes to all the others. And uh, uh, so it's able to figure out what their structure is likely to be. Um, now, it does that pretty well. I mean, we can maybe we'll talk about this a bit more in a minute, but it does that uh, fairly well for uh, for a lot of proteins. Um, it does it very, very well indeed. You can have faith that the structure it comes up with is pretty close to the one that we'd find if we studied it, you know, using crystallography. Um, but it can do it in a matter of minutes or day or, or hours rather than. I mean, sometimes it takes years to solve a single protein structure. So. That's what the excitement is about, that it seems to have uh, cracked this big question of how to go from the protein sequence to its three-dimensional structure. So if I'm right, it's not actually analysing the protein structure itself. It's looking at data sets of people who have already, um, made by people who have already analysed uh, previous uh, structures. So you say that um, it's like predicting the outcome of a football match by looking at how the two teams have fared in past matches. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if you've got a team that's been winning everything, the team's been losing everything, then, you you know, you've got a fair idea of what, when those two teams come together, what's likely to happen. You don't know that for certain, but it's likely to be a good prediction. Um, so this is the sort of basis of machine learning, that you sort of look at what's, you know, what we know in the past or what we know to be certain about the correlation between one thing and another. And from that, you make predictions uh, about, um, uh, you know, a, a situation or a structure or an entity that we don't already know about. Um, so, yeah, that, that that's right, that it's it, it's basically 
predicting the structures on the basis of past knowledge rather than experimentally actually finding out what that structure is. But we then verify those predictions for the proteins that we do know about to show that it seems to be doing a good job, that a lot of those predictions are, are good ones. And crucially, what the algorithm can also do is for every structural prediction it makes, it can provide an estimate of the reliability uh, of that prediction. It can basically tell us, look, you know, this is likely to be a very good prediction or it's likely to be pretty good, but some details might not be right. Or actually, we're not too, you know, I'm not too certain about this structure at all. So, you know, take it with a pinch of salt. Um, nature can be surprising, though, can't it? And uh, uh, one of the things about evolution is that there are, you know, uh, um, unexpected things arise. So how, you know, how reliable really could we could we um, say this this process is, and and is it possible if it is really reliable, it could, it could be extended to other forms of uh, digital biology, as it's called. Uh, I think well, it already is being uh, to answer the la that that last question. Um, machine learning is actually uh, being extended to just about every area of science now, um, because you know very often what we're trying to do is to look for patterns in the world. I mean, in a sense, that's what all science is about. And in the past, we've sort of done that very laboriously, and we've now have these these deep learning algorithms that are able to spot patterns much more effectively than we can because they can look at vast data sets that you know we could never hold in our minds or make sense of even in our own minds um it, it can it can spot patterns within those data sets and very often it does seem to be pretty good and you know as i say it's um for these protein structures when we do make a comparison with what is already known um it does seem that the predictions are pretty reliable which is to say you know when when AlphaFold says i'm pretty confident in this structural prediction um we can be sure that actually it probably is right and when AlphaFold says well, i'm not too sure about this then you know th that seems to check out too now w w one of the the drawbacks or one of the limitations of this method is that your predictions are only going to be as good as the set of data that the algorithm is trained on. So if there are proteins out there that have completely different structures from any that we've ever seen before, then they're not going to be in the training set and it's likely that AlphaFold isn't going to predict those well. And there may be proteins like that, but on the whole, there's not, there are not strong reasons to think that there are going to be lots of proteins like that. They have well-defined structures that are nothing like any of the ones that we've seen before. Because in, the, uh, in general, there are only a limited number of kind of little motifs that well-structured proteins tend to have that like parts of their chains coil up or they form sort of parallel strands they lie side by side in a sort of ribbon-like structure and you know you see these in recurring in all sorts of different proteins so there if you like there's only a, a, a seem to be only a limited number of building blocks that the structures are built out of and we kind of know what those are so it's unlikely that there are going to be any huge surprises in store for the um the proteins that we don't yet have definite data on um, Julian, I wonder if I could bring you in at this point. The extraordinary advances in AI, um, more impressive by the year, it seems. Um, and, uh, you know, there are, there is speculation, which you cover in your article, that they may be catching up or even overtaken us at the moment. But what do you make of these new developments in AI and, and really particularly whether sentience is something that we could ascribe to AI at this point or, or in the future? Well, 
if I sort of de de delay answering that second one directly, because I think Philip's example is actually very, very good. I think we have a tendency to kind of anthropomorphize, if you like, artificial intelligence. We, we call it intelligence. And every time we see something, we, we kind of can't help but thinking it as though it's like what we're doing in some way. And, you know, so, I mean, your, your question, you said, you know, catching up, overtaking. It's like the assumption is that there's a kind of this, there is a single kind of scale of intelligence, if you like, which machines can move up and down where at a certain point at, and it's going to overtake or, or not. And I think what Philip's example, that this one's really striking about, is it's really not like that at all. I mean, what this AI system is doing is utterly unlike however we solve these problems. I don't know exactly what goes on in the mind of a biologist when they're trying to work out the shape of proteins, but I can be pretty confident what's not happening is that they are, as it were, crunching a massive data set of all data that's gone before and kind of throwing out probabilities on the basis of that. I mean, I'm not saying there are maybe similarities in the processes, but I think that a lot of what we see in AI are machines learning to do tasks, which is very, very impressive and we need us. But we've always got to be careful to assume that that means it's doing kind of what we're doing. I mean, chess, chess programs are a very simple example, I guess, to get your head around this. Um, you put a chess computer against a human being and they have a chess match, right? In terms of the outputs, they're doing the same things. They're moving the pieces around. But the way in which the human player is thinking about this and the way in which the computer is crunching all the different permutations and simply sort of running algorithms are completely different. So I think that before we even start sort of to ask that question, we need to sort of remind ourselves that um, just because these machines can do incredibly impressive things and do some things much better than us, we've got to be careful not to assume that that means that whatever their intelligence is, that it's at all like ours. It could be very, very, very different, I think. I just don't know what Philip thinks about that. He's looking very thoughtful, and then he often does. Philip? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I, that, that's a really important distinction to make, that the mode, I kind of think of it as the mode of thinking, the mode of cognition that these algorithms are using is quite different to the one that we use. When a child learns a new word or learns to identify what a cat is, they don't need 10,000 training examples of cats in different postures and drawn in different ways or photographed in different ways before they can do it. They maybe need two or three and then they've got it. And they've not only got what the family cat looks like, they know to be, they're, they're somehow able to generalize that very quickly to the a draw, a cartoon drawing of a cat in a book. And that's a cat too. So, you know, clearly the mode of reasoning and the mode of learning really that, that, a, that a child is using is very different from the one that's being used in machine learning. And I think that what that actually reflects is, is something deeper about the kind of cognition that's going on. So it's absolutely true that just because this, these machine learning algorithms are getting more and more powerful and they're able to do things like, you know, protein structure prediction, which has foxed scientists for decades, that doesn't mean that somehow it's getting closer and closer to human-like intelligence and in fact I believe that it's actually going on a completely different trajectory mm. if it's learning this way there's no reason to think that it's going towards human intelligence at all I think it's going somewhere else and if we want to make it more human-like in its reasoning that's not just going to fall out of making it more and more powerful it's going to have to be somehow built in by hand 
So if I can pick up there, because then then I can go back to answer more directly Samir's question about sentience. This is why it becomes uh, so tricky, because I mean, Anil Seth, the neuroscientist, put it very well. I think that there's a kind of an assumption sometimes that where intelligence develops, sentience just sort of comes along for the ride, if you like, you know. That it, and that's not necessarily the case. Like as Philip suggests, if if these AI systems are going off in a very very different direction, there's no reason to just assume that they'll ever end up with sentience. Sentience is something else. Where does that come from? There's a lot we don't understand about that. So I'm not saying that, you know, obviously there are things we don't know, things we don't yet understand. But I think the point is with a lot of these AI systems, we do understand how they work. And we can see that what they're doing, um, you know, is absolutely has zero need for the hypothesis of sentience. And the, the example that was the starting point for my column was you know, the chatbot, I think it was a Google chatbot, where someone working for Google was worried that it was sentient. And, and the reason was that was because he could have these very uncanny conversations with it. He asked, what's your biggest fear? I'm paraphrasing a bit. And he said, oh, to be honest, it's you know being turned off because that would be the end of me and it would be like death and that would be awful. And that kind of freaked, freaked this guy out. But... When you read what the vast majority of people understand exactly what's going on in that process, when they really understand that, you can see that there's absolutely zero need to hypothesize sentience. This is exactly what you'd predict a program that is programmed to generate something that resembles ordinary speech and intelligible speech would do. And and there's no mechanism there that is that got anything anything in common with the kind of neuronal biological structures which give rise to sentience in organisms and there's and there's simply, and there's no need for it either so um, when you see a machine behaving in a way where the outputs are very similar to that of a sentient creature but you know that what is going on inside has no similarity structurally with a sentient creature and there is absolutely no need to postulate sentience for why you get this output. I don't think I have any reason to think it's there. And whether we could ever, whether these things would ever become sentient is an interesting question. But I think that you would need to have some particular reason to think that the, the substrate, the basis, the, the, the way in which it is working would generate it. You, you, you can't just hypothesize sentience on the basis of it, it coming up with output, which is comparable to what a sentient creature would output. That's, that's mixing up the output with the, the process, I think. And Phil, when we're talking about comparing the human brain, which is obviously an organic, um, uh, you know, if we were if we were to sort of be able to replicate in some way every single aspect of the human brain organically using AI or not, would we have a human brain or would we have something different? I don't think we really know what that means, Samir, to replicate every aspect of the human brain. I mean, to 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 actually, you know, we don't we don't have computers that have f even a fraction of the ability to do that at the level of, say, somehow modelling every atom in the brain. We don't know what would be important and what wouldn't be. The brain has, I always forget the number, but I think it's something like 86 billion neurons and the number of connections between them is just astronomically bigger than that so you know we're not even close to being able to do that at the moment but even if we could there's no reason to suspect that what we would be doing would be any different to for example modeling um, gravitational attraction on a computer which astrophysicists do all the time they look at the formation of galaxies that way by modeling the effect of gravity and seeing how you know uh, matter how gas kind of clumps together and so forth and the point is when they're doing that they're not actually creating a gravitational attraction inside their computer 
it's just a mathematical model. And there's no reason to suppose that even if we had a fantastic you know, algorithm that was mimicking what the brain does, that therefore it's somehow creating, it's somehow repeating what the brain does, that somehow we're creating consciousness, you know, within that model rather than just kind of mimicking it in the same way that we do with gravity. So, yeah, I, I you know, I think that, you know, even if in, in that hypothetical case that uh, that we were able to somehow model the human brain, we're not necessarily going to create a conscious entity a conscious machine that way it's a persistent fear though isn't it uh, julian that as i started off with my metaphor that you know we, we will somehow be outstripped or overtaken and it, you know in, in it's a staple of science fiction um from you know terminator to um 2001 there is this sort of sense that um uh, because they do seem to be they can do so many things that we we can't although of course as we've been saying we can do many things it can't either. Um, that lack of control, the sense in which um, it, it's a tool, but um, you know that, he, that there is a, a fear of being supplanted in the human in the, in the human experience. Isn't <laughs> well, there? There, there does seem to be. That's true, and I think that there are various sort of things behind that. I think one thing that doesn't help is that perhaps for a long while the dominant way of understanding the human mind was basically as some kind of just information processing system, full stop. And that therefore, you know, when you got very good synthetic information processing systems, it did seem, well, what's the difference? Whereas I think, I'd hope that now people appreciate the fact that, you know, our organic, fleshy, neural, cell-based nature, it probably isn't incidental to the kind of inner lives we have. And that just to simply think of the human mind as, as an, in of course it does process information, of course it does, but to think of it as purely doing that is a mistake. I mean, the, the fear, <laughs> first of all, of course, you know, since we've been around pretty much, now I'm going to rephrase that actually, I don't know. A lot of people would say that a lot of more, what are disparagingly called more primitive societies, but let's just use that in the, in, in the historical sense rather than a pejorative one, actually did understand human beings as being a part of a broader nature. But for a long time, a lot of dominant ideas in society have been about human beings being at the pinnacle of creation being different from other creatures and the only thing above us is a kind of god and I guess just as someone who is used to being the top dog in any kind of field might get afraid when they see some young whippersnapper about to take their crown the species as a whole perhaps doesn't like the idea that something could come along and take us off the tree I mean some of the fears I do seem almost a little bit silly and, and it sort of show it show a lack of imagination so t just today actually I think I heard someone saying something to the effect that the reason we've got to be afraid of these hyper-intelligent machines is they're going to be so much more intelligent than us and that therefore they're going to look at us as we look at like flies and bees and things and that's why we should be afraid you know they're, they're going to not care for us that's a really odd thing to say for various reasons <laughs> one is that actually human beings now with our very very limited intelligence are already beginning to understand that perhaps the fact that other creatures don't have the same capacities as us doesn't mean we should disregard their interests. And there are a lot of people who are already pathetically stupid human beings already sort of trying to give some kind of a moral status to, to other animals. The second thing is the analogy is just silly. You know, the, if these creatures are so clever, they're also going to know that we were clever enough to make them. 
and they will know that, right? So uh, the idea that it's inevitable that just because they're more intelligent than us, they're going to wipe us out when we become our slaves, seems to be attributing the worst aspects of human nature to things which are supposed to be better than us. So I don't really, I don't lose sleep over this, to be honest, although I think it's fascinating. It'd be amazing to be around if indeed we did come up with a form of artificial general intelligence which was just way, way, way ahead of us. But I'd hope that we'd, we'd learn some lessons from it, just, the, just as the more optimistic science fiction scenarios have the more enlightened civilizations coming to Earth and actually enlightening us and helping us to live better. More intelligent in the general sense AI, I think it's more likely to, to help us out and show us the error of our ways and is to um, metaphorically trample on us as like a butterfly. I was interested to, to see that Demi Hassabis, who's the founder of uh, Google DeepMind, um, in the 1990s was one of the designers of the, the computer game Theme Park, which I don't know if either of you two remember, but I do and I remember playing it. And essentially you're the sort of godlike creator and you have to create a theme park and make sure that you don't put the, the food stand next to the roller coaster because everyone will, will start vomiting. And I wonder whether our real fear is not actually that just that AI will become more human, but also but that we will become more sort of robot and machine-like. So um, if you have a situation where people, if we were to be predicted as, pro as well as proteins can be predicted, if our behaviour with a big enough data set could be um, accurately predicted, they do this in sports now, there's a big debate about it in sport. What does that do to the notion of us as and our free will and um, uh, the notion that we are independent actors choosing our own future? Phil? Well, uh, of course, th this is already the scenario that some people, Elon Musk has been one of them, are suggesting might actually be the case. That the argument goes that uh, it's more likely that we are already simulated creatures in some advanced computational simulation than we are kind of base level reality uh, because the argument goes that you know if you have these super intelligence in the future that can do this and can do it in to such a degree that the simulated creatures feel they have consciousness you know they experience everything as we do then there are going to be lots of simulations there are going to be countless simulations like that just as we're conducting very simple ones now as, as you say and so it's more likely that we're one of those than that we're not I think this is um, I certainly don't lose any sleep over this either but I think it's it, it, it has to my mind it has the same fallacy as as what Julian was just talking about about the assumptions we make of what advanced AI would would feel about us that somehow we always imagine these advanced machines as being kind of like us only smarter um, it seems to me that there's absolutely no reason to think that if we ever got to a stage where we had somehow created a machine that was in some sense sentient, that it would mean the same thing as it does for us, that they would be like us, they would think like us, only they would just be smarter. I think it's quite possible. I mean, as I say at the moment, the trajectory for AI isn't towards the human mind at all. I think that perhaps, you know, the, the deeper problem for the, uh, the, the longer future is that if we ever get to the stage where we have a machine that might have some sentience, we won't know 
how to look for it. We won't know what we're looking for. It may not be the same mode of consciousness as we have. Already people are suggesting that there might be some animals like the octopus that have a different kind of mode of consciousness to, to human consciousness. So how would we even know? How would we even know what it means for a machine like that to have sentience or to have consciousness? So I, I worry that in all of these scenarios often apocalyptic scenarios that we construct somehow we're not able to free ourselves from imagining the machine you know in our own mold and you know often yet somehow more malevolent but 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 <laughs> nevertheless you know a kind of a human-like mind and there's no reason to think that that would be the case mm. Julian thoughts no I, I I just I do, do, do agree with that and I think that a lot of these sort of uh fanciful thought experiments, you know, these concerns that we're already living in a simulation. Um, I mean, very clever people put them forward, right? So in some ways, these people are, are much cleverer than me. I know that in, in lots of ways, but there, there seems to be something askew in their thinking. Um, Sabine Hossenfelder, the physicist, uh, wrote about this in a forthcoming book about the simulation argument. And she's saying there's sort of some really sort of bad assumptions going on here, you know. Yeah, so this is, it's just kind of assumed that it's a little engineering problem to be able to create a simulation which could create a basically a representation of the entire entire universe well either you're going to have to cut some corners right and sort of like <laughs> and so so that you don't have to recreate the entire universe um, in order to make people feel there's a continuous universe so for example if I'm in a simulation the idea is uh, I don't it doesn't have to be simulating the rest of the world it just has to be simulating what's in my visual field and stuff and that if I do go on telephone call it simulates that it doesn't have to simulate everything but that's very 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 difficult to do and, and effectively you know the sort of the amount of just pure energy i mean she's a physicist and from her point of view the amount of energy needed to create what would be a perfect simulation of an entire universe well as a physicist i mean i'm, I'm, I'm i don't want to misquote her here she's probably not exactly saying this but it's almost like you're saying you'd probably then need the energy of the universe to create a complete simulation of the universe. I mean, that, where's that going to come from? So I think there's a lot of fanciful thinking behind that. But I think the key point, and we sort of touched it, I think, in two or three different ways in the conversation, it's just that lack of imagination, really. It's always to assume that whatever intelligence is, we are the model for it, and whatever sentience is, we are the model for it. And, of course, the, the problem is that imagining what else might be the case is extremely difficult. We are trapped within those limitations, but I think we get those glimpses. So the octopus is a very interesting example, of course. There's been quite a lot of interest recently in the way their minds work. And even before that, I mean, Thomas Nagel, very famously, the philosopher, wrote a paper in the 1970s, What Is It Like To Be A Bat? So bef before we knew about how incredible octopuses was, just everyone knew that one thing we knew about bats is they get around by this kind of so echolocation. What would it Presumably, it feels like something to the bat to feel that way. What would it feel like? We haven't a clue, but we know it's probably something. So we kind of get this sense that there is more to, there's more kinds of sentience, there are more kind of intelligences than we can imagine. But of course, we can't actually then imagine them. So this leaves us in this kind of strange position where we see beyond the limits of our understanding in some ways, but we, we can't get further into the detail of it. It's just a kind of a, a, a sketch, an outline. Indeed, and we're actually, um, there's a new book by Ed Yong, uh, which takes up the Nagel uh, theme. 
which is on my desk at the moment, which are going to be we're going to be covering and prospect uh, soon enough, which touches exactly on the idea of animal consciousness and how in what ways it's different from our own. So maybe that's a really interesting model to think about when we're when we're thinking about artificial intelligence or the fanciful thinking, as you said, Julian, that's, that goes on around it. Thanks so much to both of you. It's been really excellent to have your thoughts. And thank you to the audience for listening to our discussion as well. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please do grab a copy of the new issue of Prospect or go to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to subscribe. In the current issue, as well as Julian's column, you'll find writing from Sheila Hancock, Rose Tremaine, Malcolm Rifkind on the Tories, and much, much more. Plus, an essay from Phil on mRNA vaccines. Goodbye, stay safe, and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.